Okay, so good morning everybody and welcome to the 49th meeting of the Economy Committee. Um, some more members will be attending this morning's meeting via video conference and our witnesses will be briefing via video conference also. Um, just to remind members, the meeting will be broadcast live um, when open to the public and a recording will be made available on the committee's web pages on the Assembly website. And just to remind members to mute their tablet devices when they're not speaking. Um, so moving on then to item number one, um, apologies, we don't have any apologies nope, this morning. not this morning. Um, okay, moving on then to item number two, which is our draft minutes. Um, there is a copy of the draft minutes from the meeting held on the 27th of January at page five of your packs. Are members content that those are an accurate reflection of the meeting? Great, thank you. Um, then at page 10 of your packs, there is a copy of the draft record of decisions from the meeting held on the 27th that were, were carried over then for correspondence. So are members content that those are an accurate record? Yes. Thank you. Thanks. And then moving on, there is a copy of the draft minutes from the meeting held yesterday at page three of your table papers. Are members content that those are an accurate record of the meeting? Great, yeah. yeah. Thank you. <coughs> So moving on then to item number three, which is Chair's business. At um, page 14 of your pack, there is a proposal from FSB for a furlough cost support um, scheme. So the purpose of the proposal is to ensure that employers are assisted in keeping furloughed workers employed um, to benefit businesses and the, the local economy. Um, employers have obviously been incurring the costs um, of administering the furlough scheme for the workforce in terms of covering pension contributions and a national insurance. And obviously, this is, is an added burden to um, to businesses. So, are members content that we forward this document to to the minister? Yeah, chair, I think we, we would welcome it. Uh, something I suppose a lot of us weren't fully aware of the, the burden that businesses are carrying in relation to to the staff that are on the furlough scheme because of a lot of overheads to meet. And uh, you know, it is a good document. I had a chance to look at it. And I think you know we will be fully supportive. Hopefully, the executive will see fit to at least uh, get some funding that will help the businesses that are struggling and have to continue to meet overheads, and of course to, to encourage them to keep their staff on as long as possible as we try and work our way out of this pandemic. Yeah. So, are members content that we um, forward that to the economy and finance minister? Great. Okay. Perfect. Thank you. Very hard connection today, Chair. Yeah, go ahead, Sinead. The FSB um, paper. I just want, I think it's very. It's a bad connection, isn't it? Sinead, we can't hear you. Can you hear us? Oh, We'll come back to, to Sinead on that point. So, okay. So we move on then to item number four, which is our departmental briefing on the COVID-19 financial support schemes. There is a clerk's memo at page 18 of your pack. Um, there is the statement from the Minister for Finance on January monitoring at page 20 of your pack, and then there is the departmental briefing papers on the January monitoring round at page 41 of your pack. Um, and just to draw members' attention to page 78 of the pack, which is the departmental response regarding a query from the Finance Committee on the COVID-19 business support schemes operated by DFE. 
The response includes an outline of the schemes followed by a table giving an overview of the relevant of the schemes developed by the Department, um, which is relevant to this briefing. So the committee seek to uh, uh, to seek. Sorry, excuse me. The committee agreed to seek an urgent update on the Department's COVID relief measures following the January monitoring briefing, um, and as a result of the approach of the end of the financial year. So if I could bring into the spotlight this morning Paul Grokup from the Economic Strategy Group and Keith Forster, um, also from Economic Strategy. Chair, there's also um, a departmental sitrep that I emailed out to members this morning. Um, so that should be in their inboxes, and that's probably also very useful for this briefing if they want to have a look at it. Okay, so Paul, if I hand over to yourself, can I bring the officials into the spotlight, please? Paul Grocott and Keith Forster. Morning, Paul. Keith, um, if I hand over to yourselves to give us maybe a, a bit of an opening um, briefing and then we'll open it up to members. Yeah, uh, good morning, Chair. Um, just check if you can hear me, okay? My connection's unstable. Yeah, we can hear you. Okay, okay. Um, uh, let me know if it drops out. I'm just going to provide a very short overview. Um, Um, and we'll see 
the more activity you have time time, the more life support, which is uh, more essential. So, I was always going to go to the market star, and I decided uh, I was expecting members to be in the question. Mm. Yeah. Okay, thanks um, for that, Paul. Um, and it's useful to get, I suppose, the overview there uh, as a, a starting point. Um, and obviously, the committee is very aware of the number of schemes that are currently ongoing and of the work, obviously, of department and officials in terms of, of delivering those it is quite significant. Um, now, you did mention yourself that there are, are still some gaps in, in those schemes, and, and obviously, um, the committee has been made aware of those by, by um, various. Um, individuals and groups in relation to um, where there are those gaps and where support is still needed and um, I, I suppose with the additional funding still available at the, the centre um, in terms of the COVID allocations that there is perhaps potential to explore further and schemes or further um, I suppose um, amendments of, of current schemes in, in the absence of any additional schemes, but what would your view be in terms of being able to put, in, um, first of all, in place an additional scheme? We, we've heard calls for, uh, for example, a hardship fund to open up for those who have been excluded from other schemes. Is that something that you um, th think that the department would be open to considering and to be able to deliver? Decisions on the uh, COVID money that's been allocated to spend in this year is for the executive, so there's ongoing conversations. We have briefing from the finance colleagues. A couple weeks ago, now, I think, on how the department's contributions towards these millions from those discussions are ongoing, but within the department and between the departments to facilitate those executive level decisions. The challenge with uh, new schemes is that they are complicated and take time to deliver. Um, so there's an inevitable pressure you know, given the nature of the, the, the accountancy treatment of the funding, whether it's possible to deliver those schemes in the year. But then, um, as I mentioned, ongoing conversations internally, which we received, I think, the same representations that the committee has received on um, areas of support where key stakeholders think that there is merit in. Yeah. Um, and last week we had a response from the, the finance minister which indicated that um, he had the executive had agreed to give the economy minister some flexibility to reallocate money within the department to be able to spend it on um, COVID supports between now and the end of the year. Um, but I, I seen yesterday in the um, the allocations that were made by the finance minister, there was a, an, a, a reduced requirement for the newly self-employed scheme. Um, and obviously that is an area that has been highlighted to us as um, having some gaps in, in the current support. And there are, are some of those who are newly self-employed since 20, I suppose 2019 who have been excluded from the, the scheme as it currently stands. Um, has any consideration been given to expanding the, the criteria of the of the current scheme to be able to support some of those still excluded from that? So on the specifics of the new self-employed, um, so the committee will be right, and the briefing has been provided. The, the, the level of support provided, 3,500, is more generous than what's available in parallel schemes in Scotland or Wales, which are 
that Taylor and Taylor are passionate about them. So that the scheme in itself is really providing um, more, a more generous grant payment. In addition, so the, the cohort that the scheme is designed to support, and um, previously spoke about the 50 50 rule, um, but we adapted the scheme to bring in more people in. So the scheme is already, um, we think, quite well targeted for that sort of the purpose of the policy term that it's designed to achieve. I, I think what the, what the question may be pointing to is whether we start to get more uh, engaged uh, and involved. And the policy decisions that they take in the UK government in the design of the HMRC scheme, so they, the cohort of 18, 19, or actually earlier, because of the way the self-employment support scheme has been designed, are either um, not receiving any grant payment or excluded. The people that go into UKG schemes and try to engage and uh, pick up their gaps, the more complicated it becomes. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that that that, the, that has been amended in terms of, of the, bringing in that that 1920 cohort and the, amending the 50 um, uh, requirement, and, and I think that that was a positive um, move. I, I suppose we continue to be contacted by by those who either missed out on the SESIS because of not having met the 50% income in in that in the 2019-20 tax year. So. You know, I, I guess, I suppose the question would be, is there an, a willingness to, to look at, at um, extending that support further, given that there is money there available to be allocated to support um, more, I suppose, of those who have yet to receive any? So, I think that, so the start with sort of the objective, I guess the objective is to help these people, and the quickest way for those people to get We can we can do that absolutely, um, and I suppose we would just encourage um, the department to to be open to considering any supports for for those um, individuals who have missed out um, from being newly self-employed, and I, I guess you know there are a few other issues that have been highlighted to us in, in other schemes as well that um, potentially could be addressed in the time that we have, um, and the the fact that there is money available. Um, for example, the, the West Pub scheme, it has been highlighted to us that anybody who opened in any capacity misses out on um, the support for the week that they were opened. And there were, I suppose, bars who opened on a very small basis, um, a few tables outside, and who now find themselves excluded from, from that scheme, despite the fact that they had been, um, I suppose, encouraged <coughs> to to open up and uh, um, wanted to you know, have some opportunity to bring in some income over, over that uh, summer period. And so they took that opportunity 
Um, and I suppose if we look at the, the LRSS, where currently there is an ability for um, hospitality to do takeout services, but they're still getting the LRSS grant. So, you know, it doesn't seem to, to match <coughs> up that those would be excluded from the, the wet pub scheme on the basis that they opened on, on a very limited capacity um, for outdoor service or, or for, for takeaway. Has any kind of consideration been given to that? encourage some flexibility around that because there were some that were very limited in their their operations and they had just taken advantage of the fact that they were able to open if they were able to put in place an outdoor service and it wouldn't have been um, in any respect um, equivalent to the, their their normal service um, and so they would have had very limited income and I think it's just something that could be uh, potentially addressed in the same way that the LRSS is, uh, is allowing for, for that situation currently. So if that's something that, that could be looked at um, and if that could be raised with the Minister, I think it would be, it would be a, a welcome um, support to some of, of those businesses. Um, I'm going to bring in some other members in, in for questions. Um, John Stewart is first. <coughs> Thank you, Chair. Um, uh, thanks for the presentation so far and for the questions you've answered. Um, Chair covered a couple of my points. I want to say that I think we all acknowledge and recognise the vast level of, of state support and intervention for businesses. Um, like I'm small here in Portland, from from the British government and from the executive. Um, and no one is on the plane doing a massive task at hand to support these. Um, that being said, you know, businesses still are in turmoil and, and, and are looking for all the support they can get and communication to keep them updated while their grants are being processed. Um, just to touch firstly on CRBSS Part A and Part B, I may have missed it during your presentation. Can you confirm that that has been extended to cover the period now to the 5th of March? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, the Finance Minister's uh, announcement uh, yesterday so it confirmed budgets we might pay for the grants. That's for LRSS and for CRBSS, yeah? Yeah, so, so LRSS is managed by LCS, and that's, that's the yeah. to the regulations. So as soon as the regulations extend, it automatically increases, whereas CRBSS doesn't have its own rights, so we have to yeah. Yeah, we have to take the money effectively, and that's, uh, that's been confirmed to the uh, I'll say pay for sure. Okay. And one of the big issues around that, and I appreciate it's a, um, 
Department of Economy led scheme that is ruled out by Invest and I. And I, I think as we approach the, the start of the next phase of the restriction for these businesses, many of them are still waiting for the payment for the period from January through to now. And I appreciate there are some delays. Um, are you able to comment on where we're at with how it is possible that at the start of February some businesses have applied for CRBSS part A and part B generally haven't received the first two payments and still not got it? Does seem pretty frustrating for them. Uh, yeah, so I always appreciate from the business perspective. So the numbers are around 50% of the applicants in Part A have been paid their top up payment. That only runs until um, the 5th of February because of the uh, awaiting confirmation from the, the actual budget. So there'll be a top up payment for those people approved very quickly. And then for the Part B scheme, there's about 35% of payments uh, of those applicants have been made. Similarly, after seconds up to bring them up to the extended areas of the 5th of March. The, um, the challenge that we face is that, um, and this was uh, known from the start, is that we were running <coughs> two schemes concurrently. So uh, the LRSS paid businesses in premises, um, uh, but obviously that excluded businesses that didn't have premises or were in the supply chain. Which is why we work on CRBSS. While they've got specific populations, um, there's an evidence that there could be overlap, particularly as businesses perhaps were quite sure of the scheme they were uh, eligible for. So as we move from the sort of first sort of period of restrictions into the second one, it's necessary just to take stock and double check that there are no duplicate payments within the system. Uh, so, um, so. Invest and I have been able to do that very quickly, around 50%. There's the, the remaining 50% that are working quickly to, uh, so with colleagues in FBS and also in the department, to make sure that there's no uh, duplicate payments. Um, because you know, this is um, this is taxpayers' money, and we have to ensure that it's uh, our commitment to continue public money. As, as the document says, is invariant. So it's, it's, there's a necessary process that we need to go through, but we're working through that as quickly as possible. Yeah, no, thanks for that. I do appreciate it's public money, and I think the same people who are complaining about delays will ultimately complain that money was misappropriated in the long term. So I appreciate it's a balancing act. But what I can't get my head around and what businesses can't clear contact me is the lack of communication. I mean, the people who apply for part A and part B, for the most part, as you will know, Paul, and it's not digging yourselves, it's just to get up my chest on their behalf, or people who live in the bread line, they live week to week. So if you've got a girl who rents a chair in a salon and hasn't been able to do a single bit of hair dressing or nail bar work since November and hasn't had a payment in six weeks in the month after Christmas, I mean, we overpaid last week. I don't know you, I couldn't get by my pay I'm getting last week. So it just seems ridiculous that these people cannot get answers whenever they over the helpline. I Invest and I are doing the best with the limited resources they have, but even at communication from the department or from the minister to come out and say that we appreciate this is very difficult, this is why it is, but you know, 50%, great for the 50% we've got it, but we're heading, you know, it has been six weeks without a single penny, and when they phone up, they just get told, we're working on it. You know, I just find that very frustrating in their behalf because they're coming to us, they're not, I don't think they're coming to the department for so much, they're coming to individual reps. And, that's more just a gripe on their behalf. So hopefully the third payment, now that they are now, it has been done with um, LPS. I'd love to think it will be instantaneous, given them the, the next payment, because those 
um, that overlap is being done. Will there be any justification for throwing in the next payment that we just want? Can we get that at least that guarantee? For those that have been paid, yeah, so if you've had it, the population within the 50%, there's, there's no reason why there'll be a, a top up in the 5th March because today. The challenge is, so for example, um, LPS will have paid a business that owns a hairdresser. There may be an individual that rents a chair within that same premises. So the database triggers that these look like the same people. Um, so there's, there's just steps that we have to go through to make sure that these are genuine claims and that there's not fraudulent activity. Okay. I, I appreciate from the business perspective that's frustrating. Invest and I have sort of contacted businesses just to give them an update. Um, We'll, we'll take that feedback back and see what we can do to just give people the necessary assurances or if there's information that we require from them, just at least let them know that there's specific information that can at least have this process in place quicker than they would have been. Okay, well, I appreciate you passing that on and uh, you can maybe pass on to the Minister too that uh, a more in depth, even a weekly segment, just to tell businesses what you do and what wider audience delays would be really helpful, at least it would fill the void for more information. Um, <laughs> The, um, the self-employment scheme as well. Uh, payments are the rule out on that. Um, I want to echo the chair's idea. I know you said that it is the most ubiquitous scheme anywhere in the UK, and I don't think I'm doubting that, but I would love to see with maybe an additional resource that is available as uh, an extension of the criteria to try and capture more of the people that missed out in that gap between the one from HMRC uh, uh, and the one that the department's rule um, Is there any appetite in the department from the minister to do that? And, just in terms of yeah, as a payment we may object to those who have applied. Yeah, some payments have rolled out. So there's around um, around a third of the applicants, so 20, 22% have been paid already, and the other 12% will be paid by the end of this week. So that's so the, the quantum there is in the region of 2.8 million. The, the challenge that the, um, the teams and investors found with this is the quality of the applications. Have made it difficult for them to pay as quickly as other schemes. We were hoping that the, uh, the self-assessment deadline of the 31st of January would have helped with that, so people would have completed the necessary information uh, and provided that to HMRC, and then they'd be able to provide at least some of that information to us to enable to, to process that. Um, it's still the case, unfortunately, that there's multiple contacts required between an applicant, so a submission application, and then the team's having to go through it and fill in the blanks. Um, but Invest and I are working through that. Um, I, I think there's, there's possibly a role for the committee and members as well about how we can use you to communicate the information that's required so when um, people can send in the information much quicker, we'll give that some thought and then provide, uh, if, if you like, um, Short briefing path for you to have from your constituents or um, members of public contact you. Okay, thank you. Um, and just in terms of the excluded NI paper, I did personally think there was quite a lot of good stuff in there. I appreciate you, you saying that they recognised that an element had been covered in some of the support of the data, but is there any plans to look more detailed into that, given you know, really they've done a lot of work themselves as an organisation to identify sections? We have the alumnus sites um, through your fault of their own, and I'm just wondering what engagement does the department have with that, with um, excluded NI, if not to use the current financial year, but at least the fact starting early in the next financial year, and maybe try and be creative in how it targets some extra resource to those who have missed out. So we've received a paper, um, uh, 
and it, it's, it's part of the department's considerations. I think that the, so I mentioned earlier in response to the chair, deliverability is a problem. Certainly a challenge uh, in this year, uh, and potentially to revise new schemes um, is complicated. And you know, the, the six schemes that we've got up and running are all complicated, dealing with people that traditionally don't engage with certainly the department or government agencies to, in, in this part of the world, at least. So it's you know, there are significant challenges that we um, that any new scheme has to engage with, um, and. More than happy to engage with excluding AI. Beyond the Twitter handle, I know we've met with Brian Donaldson already. We've got his names. He sent us the paper. But there's other people within that Twitter handle that we can try to speak into. And it won't. More than happy to have the chat. Okay, well, that's all. Um, just a final thing for me, and just uh, in terms of the web pub scheme, is there any. Um, first of all, are you content with the, the level of budget? I mean, I think some pubs are saying that it's almost an insult that they might mind the potential they're getting. I know that's a little bit of an exaggeration because you shouldn't bring any gift horse in the mouth when it comes to government support, but given the massive overheads that some licensed premises have, was there any thought to, to extend that scheme financially, given that the current lockdown, for example, is extended and what they can be getting? Um, and also, in terms of the criteria, we've heard that the LRSS scheme, the Department of Finance has ruled out sports clubs, we have bar facilities, which are wet bar facilities. Is there any um, notion to extend the criteria, as well as the funding, to extend that towards our sports clubs, given that they have missed out on the The level of funding is for that, specific period where Businesses required to close. So it's important to note that this sits alongside the LRSS that will continue to pay businesses that close, which includes by folks. The, the level of grant within that period is determined by the funding allocation that we've been given. So the scheme is designed to fit the funding envelope. Um, I, I appreciate that um, yeah, those businesses are taking a lot of time. Um, we design the scheme to fit the envelope, and that's just the, that's the reality of, of what we're going to ask to deliver. Um, so is, is there anything you want to add on? Um, like you mentioned sports clubs and bars within clubs. You know, for in particular, the bars within the clubs is an issue that the policy team are currently considering um, in terms of how that's categorised within the web pumps. Um, scheme and there are a number of decisions that need to be made in terms of what the levy exclusions and, and inclusions will be there. And there's some challenges in doing that, but, but that has been looked at as a live issue at the minute. In addition, in terms of payment, I would just offer the, the additional point that the payments are obviously uh, in line with the payments that are being made under LRSS. That is a tier payment structure, uh, which is aligned with the NAV of the property. Uh, the NAV is obviously a proxy for what those fixed cost overheads are, and the scheme is designed to compensate for fixed, end, fixed cost overheads. Uh, for larger pumps um, with higher fixed end uh, overhead, fixed cost overheads, they will of course be eligible for the large hospitality scheme, um, which will offer um, a more significant compensatory amount, reflecting the fact that those businesses will have to charge paying um, high costs. I appreciate that, I appreciate that at least it's on the radar to look at sports clubs, and I think they do feel 
they do that down by other sections of government, but they just keep falling between the cracks. And I think none of us will underplay the role they play in the community and the local economy. So I think hopefully that, that does get something that's looked at. But I'll leave it there. I could go on, but I'm sure other members want to come in. Thanks. Thanks, John. Can I bring Sinead into the spotlight, please? Um, good morning, um, thank you Paul for that update um, and really a thank you to John Stewart too for coming through uh, quite a number of issues there that I think all um, members and elected representatives um, are experiencing and those are the questions asked uh, and, and the fact that we have uh, we have asked about additional schemes, um, the self-employment schemes and the wealth hubs and I'm glad that there is an ongoing conversation now taking place um, in relation to sport clubs, uh, etc. One of the things that I would really like to ask Paul, if he could elaborate um, on um, the, the, the funding that was announced yesterday for student support, um, what what does that entail and what is uh, what, how, how does that look in terms of uh, a grant or is it an enhancement of uh, the current uh, hardship fund? Apologies, it's not my. Uh my area in the department, I'm afraid, it, it, um, yeah, it's just, I'm not going to work on that, I'm afraid, so I can see you any more than some of the time, but we'd be happy to take it back and ask the officials to give you a bit more of an update on that, but, sorry, I can't give you any more details. Right, because, I mean, it was announced, but we really don't know why it's going to work in reality, so um, we can't really think too much about it. Uh, it's, it's obviously welcome, but uh, we need to know more about it. Um, so Thank you. 
Paul, can I just come in on, on that particular point? And, and I suppose the, the frustration that was being communicated to us were was that for most part it was applicants who had previously been um, who had previously received funding and then they were waiting and waiting and waiting and then they got a, an email from Invest saying we're doing this cross check with LPS around the LRSS, but they weren't actually involved in the LRSS and I and appreciate what you have previously said there around, you know, there may have been a premises, but there, I guess there was a, a lack of understanding as to why they were able to get the first payment and had to wait now on, on the second payment. Um, and I guess there was a, a, a level of frustration there because, as John rightly pointed out, that you know people are in, in very difficult financial circumstances. Um, and I, I suppose it just didn't seem to completely add up in relation to, to why they had to wait. Um, and we were getting a, a quite a, a bit of contact around that. Okay. No, thank you. Um, can I bring in Stuart, please? Uh, yes, thank you, Chair. Um, thank you, Paul, for, for, for what you've been, the information you've been giving us. I think it is genuinely fair to say that um, while there's lots of frustration out there, and you've heard some of that from the members this morning, I think we do need just to stop for a second and actually say that. Uh, Civil servants and the department have done a, an amazing job because you're working in these pandemic conditions as well. Uh, and you have done a, a good job. It cannot be easy. And I, I need to place on record uh, how difficult it must, must be for, for you and your officials to be working through this um, in, in, in all of these circumstances. So um, I, I think we just need to take a pause and say thank you for the work that's been done. Now, um, I want to move on then into just exactly where we are as we approach the end of the financial year. Uh, and you said that it would be difficult, uh, and I think the word you said was complicated, 
um, to, to roll out a, a new scheme as we approach the end of the financial year. But I know one of the, the uh, members made reference to information which uh, excluded NI have provided to you uh, by way of potential uh, of funds, uh, productive use of funds to the end of the financial year. And so can I first of all ask you, are there any plans to top up existing schemes using the resource that remains available to the end of the financial year to allow either more people to apply who um, actually got fitted into that envelope, or indeed just simply to expand the envelope and to give more funds to those uh, that are already in those schemes? Um, but that's my first question. Would you like to answer that? Oh, thank you. Yeah, uh, um, thank you very much for that, Stuart. Um, um, it's, it's really great to see the, the crowds and I'll, I'll make sure that the teams uh, pick that up. It's, uh, it means a lot, thank you. Um, on a, on a, the, the, can we use existing schemes and can we turn taps sort of flow of funding through existing schemes? You know, uh, increase that flow, sort of, yeah, increase the level of compensation or maybe broaden the the scope of the existing scheme. That's, that's absolutely part of the conversations that we're having. So, you know, that, um, both at official and ministerial level, that's, you know, that's a live and active um, sort of discussion point. And, you know, we're seized with the importance of providing as much support as possible to the business community. We don't want to get to the point of becoming a problem. Businesses are the best place to do that. So that's, that's live. Uh, and an active area of policy development. Uh, the flow of that is for purpose, like in practice, is we provide advice to our minister, the minister then takes that to the executive for decisions. That's it's happening uh, uh, in the department. Thank you, that, that, that's very welcome. I just, I mean, I appreciate that, 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 that um, all of the schemes are, are uh, complex and difficult and that you rightly have checks and cross checks to do, but why is it, for example, that a scheme like the um, Travel Agent Support Scheme has been handled to the Department of Finance, but that's clearly the core business of your own department? Uh, I'm not sure which, which scheme that is. So, so Travel Agent will be eligible for the LRSS, with the essential retail. There's also a proposal to scope out a scheme to give them additional support bearing in mind the loss of trade which has gone on over the period. Uh, but that's been worked on by the Department of Finance, but I would have thought that travel agents were your core business. I, I haven't seen that scheme, Stuart, so certainly um, travel agents have been included in the, um, yeah, in the list of issues which you know, the, the sectors that have been particularly impacted, absolutely. I think they, so they are eligible for the RSS but they're required to close. Those that aren't in premises, I think there's a bit of thinking to do that whether they're eligible for Part A. Arguably, it would be that in, the, in no small part they depend on the tourism sector, the hotels and bars being open in Northern Ireland, and therefore, certainly in that policy intent. But I haven't seen a specific scheme, but I, I'm happy to go and back and sort of check through and see where that's, and if I've missed them. Yeah, well, the, 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 the finance minister said that, and I quote, in the absence of others, he was examining uh, what support could be given to travel agents. Um, moving on, Paul, um, where are in relation to scoping out uh, the landscape, both now as we approach 
the financial year to check. Uh, and again, I think this goes back to the document which you received and excluded tonight to, to examine those that have missed out so far. Then where is that landscape and scoping document going if there is one uh, in this early part of the next financial year? Clearly, the pandemic is just not going to end on the, on the, on, on, in, in the, the beginning of the new financial year and it will continue on. So undoubtedly, uh, there will have to be further funds put into schemes uh, to deliver perhaps into the early part of the summer. I'm not going to predict when everyone start to see a return to business and all of that, but uh, clearly this is not just going to stop because the financial year uh, flips over in the next year. And maybe you could also start to, to, to indicate to us, I appreciate there is a lot of uh, hard work going on at the moment to, to, to work on these schemes, but could you maybe just set out for us a little of the prospects of the new financial year as, as hopefully we move away from these support schemes and what the future is going to start to look like? Because businesses, the, the likes that John Stewart referred to, the, the, the hairdresser who runs a single chair, to the travel agents, to, to big businesses, to the staff employed, these people will still be there when the pandemic starts to, to cool down and life starts to change again. But they're going to need ongoing, but perhaps different support into the future. And are you starting to scope some of that out? Yeah, I, um, absolutely. This, the pandemic doesn't stop on the face of the planet. It's the level of support that's available into the next financial year is going to be dependent on the funding envelope, uh, both in terms of the budget that's available, and I would expect decisions made uh, in all sorts about how Treasury spends money in England, what planning consequences of that are coming out. I don't have the detail on that, I'm very uh, happy to go back and ask the finance first. I don't think they have much sight on what yeah. the future looks like, but um, I expect all of us have to react um, and, uh, you know, um, and, and the panel kind of will change as well, so that the schemes that are currently in play may have to adapt to fit the problem that we're, we're looking into. Um, that's, I think certainly there's, a, there's a, a strong working assumption that there's a level of support and intervention is going to have to continue, certainly in the short term. Um, I think the challenge that we'll face is making sure that that pivots, as I mentioned earlier, into recovery. So moving from um, so that's the sustaining and, and the protecting type of support into much more strategic and demand stimulated support. So then the high street support schemes, for example, of that. So when shops are open, there will be a need for us to encourage uh, you know, people to spend local. You know, these you know, businesses have had a really hard time over what will be coming up to the year for some people. Um, so those sort of demands, sort of stimulus packages, uh, and then looking at areas of our economy where we have key strengths and looking uh, and targeting strategic interventions in that areas of strength to make sure that you know, where we have either global leaders or where we have a competitive advantage compared to the businesses in these islands that we're supporting businesses to make up that lost ground or, or, or seize that competitive advantage. So that will be all part of a, a the COVID recovery uh, action plan uh, and uh, the minister bringing forward what the recovery looks and feels like in the economy and what we're doing to support it, both as a department but also through our um, which invest and I and should they mention in trade earlier on are going to be hugely important partners. Yeah. Chair, thank you very much for, for all of that. Maybe just as uh, we I finish up this section just to say that um, a lot of people believe that the committee 
has a, a wide range of influence and it is our role both to hold the minister and the department to, the, to account but at the end of the day we don't make the decisions those decisions are made on the recommendations of civil to the minister uh, and i think sometimes there's a lot of confusion out there by uh, frustrated uh, constituents who contact us about these schemes and uh, uh, this is not passing the buck but it is it is saying that um the role for a, an individual member and the role for the committee is to challenge these um, and we do that robustly uh, and that's the activity that we undertake but the decision making is not ours thank you chair thanks Stuart, and i, I think that that's a, a point well made um gordon you're next in Sorry. right thanks chair and thanks very much to paul and keith for all your work to date it is appreciated i must say our office has continuously been in touch with both the Department of Economy and Invest NI, and we've got a lot of results for for very for businesses. So we do appreciate the, the response that we do get, and I think we've, we've made contacts with the right people, and as a result, we are getting answers for for businesses. A couple of uh, points: just the BNP scheme is welcome, but there is one big issue, and that is self-catering. Uh, some units are do both. Some will do B and B, and you have the option of self-catering on, on the same site. Uh, I was somewhat uh, upset when I realised that, that self-catering is not is not included. It's my understanding, and I've, I've spoken to some people in the in the department, and they're saying, but uh, self-catering has been open. But you know, it may have been open, but we've had little or no tourists. You know, we've had little or no flights in and out of the country. There's been little or no movement. So I do think there is an argument there that self-catering needs to be uh, compensated in some way. So, uh, yeah, just to, so specific to the scheme in turn and then the self-catering, um, the scheme was designed, similar to the web policy, was designed to, to support those that have been really quite significantly impacted. Um, you know, that is the population of Senate. Being based in the guest houses, um, have, have had a really difficult time. Self-catering is, is, is slightly different. It, it's not to say that they are uh, have been insulated or not affected by the pandemic. But the, the period where the like, relaxations were, the restrictions were relaxed. Um, our assessment was that lots of people, uh, albeit inbound tourism, was significantly reduced. But there's lots of people that could go abroad who decided to stay you know, holiday at home. Uh, and because of the, you know, the, the risk of the pandemic was still there, self-catering accommodation was particularly attractive. Um, so in that sense, it's slightly different um, than for the B&Bs who uh, the, the, the level of impact is, is different uh, and that's reflected in the scheme. So are you reviewing that or is there any intention to review the issue of, of the self-catering? It may have operated to a certain level, but it's 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 nominal compared to what normal business was throughout the past year. Yeah, no. Okay, now I will be taking that up with the Minister again. Um, I have a constituent who has done a lot of lobbying. Uh, Sorry, Keith. 
sorry, just going to say, uh, Gordon, the, yeah, sorry, the um, subcarrier are eligible for the, the LRS escape. Um, just in case you were there. LRS, yeah. Yeah, because of loss of income, because of lack of business. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right. The other point is, Megan, uh, we have a, a constituent in North Down who has done considerable lobbying. He um, is a golf coach and runs a, a shop at the Royal Belfast Golf Club. Uh, he does not pay rates and he does not pay rent, but to date he has had no grant support uh, as he has no income or relatively no income because golf clubs are closed. What scheme is he, is he possibly eligible for? What, what should he consider applying for? He has talked to many uh, officials. He's been in touch with the this permanent secretary in the Department of Finance and many others, and yet the issue hasn't been resolved. Do you have any guidance or any thoughts that you could give them in relation to existing schemes? Please. Hi, so this is Gordon. If you said it's difficult to comment on specific cases Right, okay, thanks for that. Right. Just the other point and perhaps you cannot answer it. The student scheme. Um we welcome the progress on that. Just um we have a lot of students that are from Northern Ireland or on the mainland uh, studying. Are they going to be considered for for the scheme or not? Have you any thoughts on that or any aware? Yeah, um, sorry, but, um, I have to get colleagues and skills to come back on the details. That's something that I've been working on. Um, yeah. So, um, okay. I'll use that. The last point is the hotel scheme, which we, we lobbied hard for. Uh, is it open now? Is it open running? I know it was approved, but is it up and running? Do you know? Yeah, it's still open, so we've been in touch with uh, key stakeholders to advise them of the scheme, the payment rates, um, and it's, uh, there's, a, uh, there's a processing that needs to go through to the, the guys preparing, you know, writing out to contact the businesses that's requesting necessary information. I've said to speak to the stakeholders, uh, the feedback we got, the, the knowledge that this is coming, was which really welcome and give them at least some freedom space. Um, we're working hard and as quickly as possible to get actually get to the money out of them. Good. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Keith. Thanks, Chair. Um, thanks, Gordon. Paul, can I just ask a question around that, that large um, hospitality tourism scheme? Um, obviously, it was very welcomed by the, the sectors, but it has been brought to our attention that um, cinemas and other events mm. venues aren't eligible and... I suppose the, the one of the reasons for putting that scheme in place was because those businesses missed out on the, the previous grants on the basis of their NAV being over 51k. And for some of, of these venues, that would have been the same situation. 
Um, is there any consideration being given to extending that out just to cover those venues that also have been very badly impacted and, and similar to hotels have went to some lengths to put in place measures you know, to protect staff and customers and, and have unfortunately been closed for, for several weeks um, now? Yeah, so, so the, the original policy intent was targeted at large fixed costs at the large hotels. That's the reason why it was designed, because there's a bit of work that we have to do to join up between ourselves, the Department of Finance, the Department of Communities, to make sure, because we're all in, we're delivering schemes in the same space to make sure there's a bit of overlap. That's the, 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 <coughs> those conversations at, at official level are happening, uh, just to make sure the advice provides uh, ministers is compatible and complementary, uh, and, and that issue is included in those conversations. Okay, thanks for that, Paul. Um, John O'Dowd, please, can we bring John into the spotlight? Uh, thank you, Chair. Uh, well, thank you uh, to Paul and Keith for the answers thus far. Paul, I just want to echo uh, the Chair's comments and other members' comments around the wet walls. I don't want to rehearse the answers because of the time uh, the committee has, but I do want to echo them. Uh, just for you to relay those back to the Minister, uh, that that scheme isn't responsive to the needs of folks. The point I do want to, uh, to labour on is the issue of uh, payments not being received by businesses. And the term business isn't actually the right term. When you're talking about uh, a young woman or a woman hiring a, a hairdresser and a hairdresser's or a, a beauty salon or whatever it may be, it's not a business in, that, in the true sense of the word. They don't have assets. Uh, they don't have stockholders or shares or anything out there. They're living week to week on the money they earn from hiring that church. So business is the right term. And by the extent the need for public money to be protected, uh, I can assure you in the history of human adversity, there has never been a statute built in a count because they've done a great job uh, and the currency during the time of crisis. What we need to do is get the money out the door and into the pockets of those people who haven't received payments since before Christmas. And I, I, I actually echo Stuart's comments, because this isn't a criticism of yourselves, your team, or in the SDNI. I'll tell you why. Stuart has said, I got a query yesterday to the SDNI, and I got a response back last night at 10 to 11, yeah. which shows me the sort of hours people are working uh, in your team and in other teams to try and deal with these issues. But the, the problem is this, we are, they, they are processing bureaucracy. They are in a, in a system which is measuring itself, monitoring itself, and being overly excessive in protecting public funds and missing the point. There are real people out there, like young women with young families, who have no money. So let's get the money out the door with the proviso uh, that anyone who has fraudulently claimed will be come after. Anyone who is mistakenly paid will have to return that money. But the balance is wrong. The balance is wrong. People are, and I'm thinking of one particular case maker such as this at this moment in time, a young woman who has had no money since before Christmas and has a young father. So can we get the balance right? Can I just say, yeah, you sort of use that example. Is that, is, is that constituent, um, is, is, 
And that is obliged to be self-employed income support scheme or the new self-employed support scheme. For CRBS scheme uh, was approved originally. I know right now there were some complications with the application uh, and I hammered through those. But approved early January and I said no money. And, but had no money since the place was locked down. And uh, I just want uh, to make this point, Paul, sorry for interrupting. The, the, the email I got last night from Wednesday uh, and I said that 2,000 payments have been made. I think earlier in your contribution you said about 50% of payments have been made. So if 2,000 people have been paid, that's 50%, that means 2,000 have been paid. So my example is multiplied across all constituencies. Yeah, and, and listen, I've heard that, and we'll go back to so two points again. One on communication, how we're explaining, process the people are in, uh, and then the processing product, which also we'll listen to. Just on that, you mentioned that the, the, the individual hasn't had any money, so while the CRBSS part B may have not paid, I would have expected these people to have applied for one of the two self-employed support schemes that are available and designed to help people. So they, CBSS is designed to cover fixed costs rather than repose incomes. So this, they should be, given that the, the combination of those sort of schemes from HRC or the schemes from IOS, there should be funding going into these individuals, particularly for self-employed. Well, Paul, my comments about the system being overburdened in the wrong direction applies to all schemes. It applies to all the schemes, whether it's wrong from the Department of Economy or from, from uh, UTMRC. This individual has had no money. And then that's a, a example, and there's multiple examples of that. Uh, we are in a, 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 a crisis, which we're all living in, including the, yourself and your team, and you know, all, all impacted by it. Uh, but as I said at the start, no one wins awards for being a great accountant in, 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 the t in times of crisis. People remember, uh, and quite rightly remember, those who get assistance out to those who need uh, Absolutely, that's so that the, the intent of the scheme is to get money as much as possible. Um, but there's, if there's lessons from the delivery of the 10,000 grants support scheme that we have to learn, uh, and I'm quite confident that within the next six months I'll be back in this committee answering questions about fraud, risk and error. Um, and you know, that's the operating environment that we work in and if there is a balance that we need to strike to, to make sure that our safeguarding of the money, that our duty is invariant, that's the word that that can be used and we have that's you know, the opposite to, to be measured uh, in the future. You know, within that we'll we absolutely I, I hear you and I appreciate the difficulties that people are facing. We look at those comments and also the processing of um, those the 50% implied and repaid in the large number of that Paul, feel free, and I'm sure you will, keep an answer from this committee. And if I challenge you over uh, you uh, not sticking to accountancy rules, please read, read, read the, the answer out to me, and I may not be back back. I suspect they will, because I said at the start of this crisis, rip up the rule book. I get more out of people, and my thoughts on that are still the same. Of course, you have to protect public funds, and there has to be a balance, but the balance is in the wrong direction. Thanks, John. Thanks, John. Um, can we bring Claire in, please? Uh, one, uh, other one, um, uh, 
The other point um, I would ask in relation to this and the people who continue to be excluded, um, last year, um, nearly a year ago, um, I had made a suggestion that we open up some sort of communication channel so that those people who were excluded um, could uh, put forward their details and let you know why they were excluded or you know why they fell through the cracks in the other schemes. Is that still something that we should be doing, just to try and identify the people out there and see how we can capture everyone? Because you know, I, I don't think it's a difficult thing. I'm pretty sure if, if people um, if people um, haven't received any money, they'd be quite keen to tell you that. Um, you know, so is there a way that we can somehow try and I suppose you can get that list of people and just understand why they've been excluded. Um, again, that will help us with evaluation and with the ball. Um, we're fully there, we can follow up. Yeah, so um, absolutely, there's schemes in place. Um, a lot of detail on the mitigations to fraud and error. Um, so, this, you mentioned it. The specific point of resolution or money that's that's included within the schemes. Separately, the, within the department, there's a, a team that we established to uh, assess this uh, and to, to do those project um, project evaluations to make sure that the schemes delivered. And um, what we set out to do, and the fraud and error rate within the schemes was not excessive. And if we do identify issues, such as they to address those. That's that's part of the scheme. Um, you're interested in what that looks like from a governance level, more than happy to share that. Um, on evaluation, I, I haven't stopped to think about too much, I'm afraid, so I haven't got a lot of members of the best way to do this. Um, I look forward to a conversation about that, maybe that's uh, um, appropriate. And then on um, yeah, a portal, so I guess there's, there's lots of stakeholder groups out there that sort of represent uh, different people. So we, we you know, excluded and analysed the obvious one, but there's, you know, we, we get representations from the likes of the Federation of Small Businesses, from you know, the other trade bodies. So they, I think, are um, effectively capturing the people that you talk about. Um, I, don't, I can't think of anybody that we're, that we're not aware of. Um, I suppose that's the difficulty. We can't think of anyone that doesn't mean to exist. And yet we can assume that they're captured by various you know, interest groups or lobby groups. But you know, I, I'm receiving a you know, considerable amount of correspondence continued, as I'm sure are is Northern Ireland. And for me, it would be useful if it was some sort of um, communication channel that we can pass that on rather than the blanket response of these are the various schemes or go to mibusiness.info to find out. They've already done that, we've already done that. We have nowhere to go insofar as those people who are, who are not necessarily represented or, or maybe just aren't aware that these groups exist. Because these groups, you know, so because of the situation as well, um, essentially exist on social media. They essentially exist, you know, on very specific channels, and we can't assume that everybody has access to that. And they're doing a fab job, you know, might I add. But to me, it's it's not insurmountable to um, to ask that you know those other businesses or, or to, to to pass on their details or just to share that information because you know that you know for them and every MLA set up to this point. You know, they're, they're just not being supported, and um, we need to we need to find a way in, in supporting them. Yeah, so I'd be interested to know if there are 
of people that genuinely have got nothing. Be interesting to know who they are. Um, uh, okay, well, maybe, maybe if you want to, I can go for Maureen, because I don't want to do that. Well, you know, maybe so if you, you know, if, if you want to set up something else, some sort of portal, I suggest
we can't wait it's in an isolation particularly for businesses so um but that's it that, that's great thank you paul appreciate that thanks claire can we bring christopher into the spotlight please Christopher, you're in the spotlight. I think you're on mute. Can't he? Into the economy. 
myself on fusion. I don't know, I don't have a animal life for them. And again, we can look into that, but if that's available on a telescope number of grand speed, then we will be able to telescope months. I mean, um, one of the things that I think has caused a lot of confusion, you mentioned it earlier, is the sort of crossover that there is between economy, finance, social communities, and even uh, to an extent infrastructure in relation to some of these issues. Can I ask which department is given the lead? Uh, Mr. Dixon raised the issue of travel agents. Is my understanding that the Department of Finance is given the lead on that issue? Is that, is that the case? Um, so, um, as Susan mentioned, the scheme, I haven't seen Mr. Murphy's comments, so I have to look into that. Um, is, so they're eligible for those, the LRSS, which is made by the Department of Finance, and then it's outbound, so it's in traditionally it's a department, but not as many as the city points in the line, so I'm in the line, but I think how it is being. Um, but that answers your query. I mean, um, I mean travel agents have obviously faced a unique set of challenges um, in terms of just the longer this has gone on, the more time um, they have taken. One area as well that has uh, taken, taken a similar degree of time is that of um, coach operators and taxi drivers. And I'm just wondering if you speak to that in terms of the level of support. Because throughout, uh, 
line of the channel. Yeah, but that was affecting not only the people who are employed in those uh, areas, but also it is affecting uh, the community and the, the general well-being uh, of uh, the people. So I'm just wondering, do you know if there's anything coming down the line that is a specific target of intervention to assist the art sector at this time? Yeah, so I probably don't have any point about sort of the, the place that these uh, businesses and institutions play in developing an ecosystem that does a successful and has to absolutely. If there's the art sector, if there's a specific experience from our communities, that was the groups that you identified. Well, thank you, Christopher. Um, Paul, can I just ask one quick question around the, the High Street Voucher Scheme? Um, I, I noted that the, there was that 93 million of a reduced requirement and there had been 95 allocated. Was there money spent in terms of the development of the scheme? Yes, yeah, so the procurement um, and is that something then that will be carried over in terms of, of that work already done? So the, the two, so the two strategies, yeah, so it, it will be carried over. That's the, the split between the, the, so the, the 95 is allocated, and then the reduced requirement of 93 two million is the procurement steps that we can take uh, immediately. Uh, Ensure that the, you know, the, the scheme is ready and the health advice permits and jobs are open. Yeah, no, no. I, when I said carried over, I meant that, that that work's already done, so it doesn't need done again. Yeah, so yeah, I understand. Yeah, so it's, 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 for example, it's, it's specific with the elements around um, how we sort of get people to register their cards uh, and match status to ensure they are, they are, exactly are. Okay. Okay, thank you. Um, and I guess just to sum up from members' contributions, um, I think that if there is a takeaway message, it's to, to try as best as possible to um, meet the needs of those who have still been missed out in terms of support and, and hopefully um, the, the points that have been made will be relayed back, back to the Minister in terms of trying to, to make best use of, of money that it remains available at the centre and, and hopefully we'll see some further developments in that space. And just to, to reiterate the, um, the comments that other members have made, we do recognise the, the significant effort that has been put in to delivering schemes both by the Department of Economy and also by um, LPS in particular. And, and we do appreciate, as John has highlighted, the, um, the extra hours that the officials are all also having to work at this time, and we um, we do pass on our thanks for that. Uh -huh. yeah, thank you, Rochelle. It's, um, it's really appreciated. Thank you. Thanks. Okay. Um, okay. So, do we want to do a wrap up, or will we do it after? I can give you a very quick uh, set of readouts, Chair. Where where uh, a couple of individual cases we're sending direct to Paul via the Dallo. Uh, also, we are looking at getting more information on just exactly how the department uh, puts disclaimers into the uh, schemes in terms of if this has been paid you incorrectly, we will, there's a system for getting it back. Um, also, seeking an update on the work of the EAG, the Economic Advisory Group, um, asking about what's going to be happening post-furlough 
in terms of the numbers that are already on furlough who are likely to perhaps not have a job to go to. What's going to happen there? How will that be worked? What sort of schemes might be put in place for that? And also clarifying further on what exactly is going on around travel agents. There, there seems to be... Uh, there's been a lot of discussion around, but we're, we're, we're not entirely sure what exactly has happened. So trying to get better detail on that, Chair. Um, and anything else, we, when we go back, we'll pick up on anything else. But those are the ones that we've noted so far. Okay. Are members content with those? Great, yeah. Thank you. Good. Hey, thank you. Okay, so moving on then to item number five, which is the briefing from the Health and Safety Executive. Um, there is a clerk's memo at page 56 of your pack, and there is a briefing paper from the HSE at page 58. The committee agreed to seek the briefing from the HSE as a result of the increase in its workload due to COVID and changes following the end of the EU exit transition period. Um, so can we please bring into the spotlight Robert Kidd, CEO of the HSE, Dr Brian Monson, um, Deputy Chief Executive, Nikki Monson, Grade 6, Lou Byrne, Grade 6, and Kevin Neeson, Principal Health and Safety Inspector at the HSE. Can you all hear me okay? Yes, good morning, Chair. Robert Kidd, can you hear me okay? Hiya, Robert. Um, if I hand over to yourself to, to make a, a bit of an opening statement and then we'll open up to members. Okay, thank you, Chair. Uh, I'm conscious, obviously, things are rolling behind. I plan to speak for about 10 minutes with Billy's permission. Yep, no, that's fine. Possible? Yep. So, good morning, everyone. Can I begin by thanking the Chair, the Deputy Chair, and the members of the committee for the invitation to speak to you today to update you on our work activities over the last six months. Can I also thank those members who have contacted us throughout the pandemic in an effort to resolve issues brought to their attention by their constituents. I'm joined today by the team that have already been introduced. Ryan is responsible for Food Operations Division. Nikki is responsible for Specialist Services Division. Kevin is responsible for Services Division. And Louis is responsible for the EU NI protocol work. So, by way of a very brief introduction, HSENI is a small, non-departmental public body. We have a staff complement of 108 at present. This includes an inspectorate staff of 41, which also includes eight trainees and four part-time staff. In addition, we have four compliance officers who work in specific areas. Our responsibility for workplace safety covers areas including agriculture and food, manufacturing utilities and docks, construction, extractive industries, and the waste recycling sector, explosives used in mining and quarrying, major hazards, which are typically the coma sites or control of major accident hazard sites, gas, transport, public sector, occupational health and hygiene, including the mental well-being and work advisory service, major investigations, support and coordination of our trainees through the training program, EU exit for chemicals and product safety and the associated legislation in relation to both of those. Our operational support team, which is call handlers uh, and dealing with email for notifications in our complaints team. And then we have a small function covering complaints, IT, finance, premises and information management. For some time now, we've been running with vacancies in our inspectorate numbers and this has been exacerbated recently where we've lost experienced inspectorate staff both through NICS promotion and retirements, etc. 
The very acute inspector and staffing situation has been put under considerable strain since the start of the pandemic. To put the inspector resourcing in context, at times over the past 10 months, we've had as few as 28 staff who could deploy in the field. I wish to put on record that our sponsor department has always been and continues to be hugely supportive of our position, but it takes time to secure funding, recruit and train inspectors, and this can often be a process taking three or sometimes more years. It goes without saying that our work activity has continued to be fundamentally impacted by the COVID pandemic, and I'm not trying to claim to be special in this respect, as I cannot think of a sector which has not been forced to adapt as a direct result of the necessary restrictions coming out of the pandemic response. It is fair to say that every sector we interact with has come through a period of turmoil to restructure their workplace in order to not only continue to function, but also to keep their workforce safe. COVID has meant we have not delivered the full range of events and promotional activities as we would in a normal year. It has overtaken our operational activity, but as you will hear, this has not meant that we have totally abandoned our normal work activity. We recognise that there is an ongoing need to focus on those high-risk work activities that can lead to fatalities and serious injury, as well as those that are a major cause of ill health in the workplace. Much has been learned since the onset of the first lockdown in March 2020. The involvement of HSENI in partnership with industry representatives, company managers, trade unions, health and safety managers in workplaces has enabled us to take the public health guidance and seek to apply it in conjunction with a workplace risk assessment to devise plans which enable essential businesses to continue to operate safely. Building on the principles of hands, face, space, We've integrated other medications developed by public health specialists into the advice and instructions have been issued, including screening, cohorting of staff, one-way systems, staggered start and finish times, expansion into additional space where possible, staff working back-to-back -back or side-by-side -side rather than face-to-face, -face, cleaning regimes, use of fogging technologies, dedicating certain tools or equipment to specific individuals, Pointing COVID safety marshals on the shop floor, staggering break times, limiting numbers using changing facilities or other amenities. This list has built up quickly over time, providing a menu of measures suitable for different settings and workplaces. In more recent months, as more became known about the virus, we introduced how ventilation can be used to reduce the likelihood of COVID spread in a workplace. HSENI work practices continue to react and evolve in light of emerging public health guidance, assisting businesses develop simple solutions that can be implemented quickly as more sustainable solutions can be considered for the longer term. The placing of COVID in the workplace was and continues to be challenging. The decisions my staff have taken and continue to take could have both health and economic implications. <coughs> COVID was something very new and the measures to mitigate against it were driven by public health, not traditional health and safety. That said, I'm proud that my staff have adapted and learned quickly to provide the best service we can to both employers and employees. HSENI does not have policy responsibility for COVID as it is a public health matter. And as you're aware, it is community transmissible and not purely passed on via the work setting. Workplaces being an extension of the community can, despite best efforts, see positive cases presenting. Employers in general have made sturdy efforts to act quickly in this respect, 
However, the challenge of complying with public health guidance is definitely more difficult in some industry sectors compared to others. We have a close working relationship with public health agency and together we have investigated more than 150 workplace cluster incident reports. In these cases, it is rarely possible to establish categorically the source of transmission, but the key factor is containment and the prevention of further spread. Our role is to re-examine the workplace measures and to seek to identify any possible shortcomings which can be addressed, provide advice and where necessary instruction to businesses. It is unfortunate that many of the problems we see are down to human behaviour and a disregard for the advice which exists to keep us all safe, whether from employers or employees. We've heard anecdotal reports of staff attending work when symptomatic or even having tested positive. Similarly, we've heard reports of staff being pressurised to turn up for work when an individual believes they can work from home or be furloughed. We see workers disregarding advice to socially distance or wash hands. Like a failure to wear a mask in a shop, these situations can happen in an instant and are impossible for any regulator to place effectively. The employer's approach, the employee's attitude and peer pressure from colleagues are much more effective tools of achieving sustained compliance. As in all aspects of life, where compliance can be achieved willingly rather than by enforcement, we are more likely to see a position that can be maintained in the longer term. Of course, as well as our COVID compliance and advisory work, we have sought to conduct checks on other matters while we've had staff on site. As part of our ongoing evaluation of the deployment of staff to sites, we've taken the decision to deploy in pairs for operational reasons to ensure staff safety and as the role of inspection has become much more demanding. In addition, where we've had to deploy to large sites as a result of complaints or COVID cluster reports, we've seen cases where we've had to deploy multiple staff over several days to ensure matters were resolved to our satisfaction and to seek to avoid, avoid enforcement notices, which could have significant economic impact on business in what is already a very challenging time for the economy. With the news of the new strains or variants of COVID, and evidence that the new strain is up to 70% more transmissible, we took the decision to reduce deployment of staff to only high-risk COVID-related issues and the most serious incidents and fatalities. This was to both ensure the safety of our own staff, but also to prevent our people becoming carriers of the virus between sites. Of course, we take every precaution when staff are on site, and the benefit of our 10 months of learning is that we've had no staff who have contracted COVID as a result of work-related activity. Unfortunately, during the, the reporting year, since the start of April 2020, unconnected to COVID, we've seen nine fatalities in the first three quarters of the year, which is up from seven in the same period in the previous year. Agriculture continues to be the highest cause of workplace deaths, with three fatalities, and construction and manufacturing, both behind with two each, and one in healthcare and one in electricity supply sectors. <clears throat> Excuse me. Working at height without adequate fall protection measures continues to be a major concern. And in agriculture and construction, the issue is around individuals seeking to save time and money and exposing themselves to risk, which can often have tragic consequences. In manufacturing and construction, other risks are available and <clears throat> related. 
The need to ensure an appropriate vehicle pedestrian segregation is critically important, as often the visibility immediately around large plant is not ideal. While we investigate many fatalities and serious incidents, it goes without saying that education and mitigation of risk is infinitely preferable to dealing with the aftermath where the system has broken down, leading to a life-changing injury or worse. The human cost, the economic cost and the social costs are hugely significant. Families left without a parent, a spouse, a sibling, a grandparent or family members having to watch a previously active person learn to live with life-changing injuries such as the loss of a limb or other debilitating injuries are a sad reality. There is also the impact of on colleagues struggling to go back to work having witnessed a co-worker killed or seriously injured in the workplace. The role of HSCNI will continue to send out messages to seek to find new ways of getting to those who have thus far chosen to ignore the warnings. One of the most difficult things for me as the Chief Executive of HSCNI is to hear the background to a fatality or a major injury and know that in all probability it could have been prevented. The modern workplace can mitigate the risks and provide the necessary equipment uh, or systems of work to ensure that the activities can be undertaken in a manner whereby risk is managed to an acceptable level. On the positive side, we have seen serious injuries reported fall from 17 to 6, which may in part be due to some businesses having been closed or operating on reduced capacity during the pandemic period, so we must not become complacent on those figures. The number of interactions we've had with clients has risen by around 140%, going from 9,150 to 13,781 in the nine months from April to December 2020. All complaints and incidents are initially triaged and information gathered to assess what is the most appropriate course of action. In some cases, issues can be quickly addressed by communicating with the complainant or the company involved, whilst in other cases, site visits will be required. In all, there were 1,341 complaint investigations which resulted in 460 site visits during the period. Just over half were not upheld, that's 52%. 41% were fully or partially upheld, and the percent are still ongoing or unresolved at this time. Site visits have been reduced as a result of COVID. In areas such as agriculture, we suspended routine farm inspection to enable the agri-food team to focus on food production and food processing plants. This has been a demanding area from the start as it was one of the key essential industries that operated throughout the pandemic and so they were trial sites for many of the solutions which are now common across industry and retail sites. Many events have been delivered in other ways such as video conferencing, webinars, social media and website materials. We continue to seek to deliver our messages on vitally important areas such as mental health and well-being in the workplace as this is very much an area of concern at this time. People's mental health generally is an issue that they, they struggle to cope with during the pressures of lockdown, fears of job security, potential isolation for those working alone at home, fears for family members, pressures of homeschooling are just some of the many things which people have to cope with. We've also sought to continue to raise the profile of issues such as carbon monoxide poisoning, and we're working hard on an asbestos campaign. Members will also have seen our continued campaign efforts through the Farm Safety Partnership, and the messages continue to be televised 
and throughout through other media. False Rye <coughs> continues to be a concern, and I've already touched on that as well, both in the agriculture and the construction sectors. And we've worked very closely with the Construction Industry Training Board and the Construction Employers Federation for some of the construction injury or sorry, construction incident campaigns. Moving on to EU exit work, HSCNI has responsibility for chemicals, product safety, and the underpinning legislation for both of these under Annex 2 of the Northern Ireland Protocol. This is fundamentally new work coming to the organisation and will require the recruitment of a number of new staff in order to carry out the work. We are currently working to recruit 11 new staff to this area and hope to have the first of these staff in place by April, May with a proposed operational readiness date of September. The scoping and planning of this work has been challenging given the uncertainties that persisted throughout 2020. As some issues remain unresolved for our work in this area and we face some considerable challenges, we now have a clearer vision of where we need to go and indeed how we will get there. We are heavily reliant on ongoing and future support from UK government departments in respect of all of our protocol work. In terms of planning going forward, we have drawn up a revised operating plan and I believe committee members will have seen this late last year. What you will see is that it highlights some of the difficult decisions we've had to take in terms of skewing resources to the most pressing of our activities, namely COVID-related pressures. The senior management team continue to keep this situation under constant review and will make adjustments to our work planning as demands allow. I believe that the communications with a wide range of partner organisations has been hugely improved as relationships have been forged upon learning together, sharing best practice, promoting what works for employer and employee, and an understanding that concerns can be voiced without fear of recrimination, or where such fears exist, there are anonymous reporting mechanisms which protect the individual employee. HSENI has been given a prominence as a result of the pandemic that we probably never had at any time before, and I believe we are not seen just as an enforcer, but also as an educator, an advisor, and a body which exists to support the economy, both from the employee and the employer's perspective. I hope that our briefing and these opening remarks have provided some insight for the committee into the efforts that we've made to address workplace challenges as a result of the pandemic. Can I thank you all for your patience? Uh, we will be happy to try and answer any of the questions that the committee would have for us. Um, thank you very much uh, for that overview, Robert. It's really useful to get the, the background and, and the, the detail um, in, in respect of the, the work that has been going on over the past few months. Um, as you've highlighted, many of us will likely have been in, in contact with you over, over that period and, and, and um, appreciate the, the responses that, that we have had. Um, just, I suppose, in relation to, um, first of all, the, the, the COVID work, and um, and you will appreciate that when people are contacting us, it's it's very often with with genuine concerns, and um, and they they are you know very worried about their own personal safety or or that of their their workmates. Um, just in relation to the the visits that are conducted, um, and in respect of complaints. Are, are there any unannounced visits currently being carried out um, where there are, I suppose, persistent or numerous um, contacts in relation to a particular workplace? Yes, Chair, we've had a number. Uh, in fact, most of our visits 
will still be carried out in an unannounced manner. So where we have information provided as by way of a complaint, we will do our investigations. I mentioned that a triage process. So we'll gather the information. If it's a larger employee, typically we will have multiple complaints. So the triage system allows us to build a bit of a picture and then the teams will typically arrive on site unannounced, um, which allows them to obviously see things just exactly as they are. And in some cases where inspectors have continued concerns or reservations, we have conducted further follow-up, again, unannounced visits, um, sometimes as, as close as a week or 10 days after the initial visit. Okay, no, I appreciate that. And is there contact made with the, the businesses in advance of um, unannounced uh, inspections? So what, after, during that triage process, is there um, contact made with the, with the businesses during that that will give them, I suppose, some indication that they're likely to receive a visit? It, it will depend, Chair, I suppose, on the nature of the complaint. Um, in some cases, when our teams are handling the complaints, they may be able to gather some information by liaising with the company. Um, so it, it's, it's difficult to say just exactly, as you say, there, there may be an indication, but certainly in, in some cases, yes, part of handling the complaint will involve speaking to the company and whether that's to management or to a health and safety manager within the company. Okay. No, I, I, I do appreciate that there are, are different circumstances um, and in some instances it, um, an unannounced visit may be, may be the, the way to go. I, I, I note the, the comments that you made around the close working relationship with, with the, the PHA um, and I, I guess that again is something in terms of, of contact that is made with us where there are concerns about outbreak or transmission within in workplaces. Um, can you maybe just talk a wee bit more about what it, what is being done in respect of that, and I'm thinking not just the likes of factories, but also you know construction sites and 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 those type of businesses where social distancing can be very difficult to to actually implement because of of the nature of the work. So we're having a wee, sorry, we're having a wee bit of interference. Um, I'm not sure why. <coughs> oh, yep, that stopped. Uh, that mm -hmm. yep. yep. Good. So we've had over 150 cluster reports which we've uh, received from BHA and dealt with. Um, and in each of those cases, again, there's an assessment made based on previous history with the company and the type of cluster, uh, and looking at the contact tracing. Uh, and in many instances, then we will carry out site inspections. The majority of those site inspections will be again unannounced, unless there's a good reason not to. Um, and we will have we will look at the suite of controls which are available um, and assess whether the uh, appropriate controls and, and what we talk about is defence and safety and number of controls which are all applied together. So each of those will be um, specific to a particular company or sector. So what works for construction, as you said, may be very different uh, to what we might see in, in a food production site. Inspectors uh, then provide feedback to PHA and in relation to some of the larger outbreaks, <coughs> um, we'll be involved 
involved in the incident management team, um, outbreak control, uh, providing support to PHA, providing input both uh, initially in terms of the risk assessment uh, and also later to see that the measures that uh, are being recommended have appropriately put in place. Um, and those, um, those are quite intensive, uh, they take a lot of staff time, but we think they're very worthwhile in terms of um, reducing risk to people at, at some of these sites where breaks are occurring. Yeah. Can I just ask, um, and maybe it's for yourself as well, Brian, in relation to providing advice and guidance to um, specific sectors, does that come via yourselves or is that jointly with PHA? Again, there's a mix. Um, sometimes the advice is coming jointly from PHA and ourselves. Sometimes what we do is take the advice which is uh, generally available, public health advice, uh, and adapt that, working with companies to, to um, identify solutions which work for them. Okay. Um, and I suppose it. I, I mentioned the, the, the construction industry and, and because there have been some concerns, you know, for example, people traveling in work vans and things like that. Um, and is there, is that something that you have had contact around or is that something that has been proactively um, communicated by yourselves to, to employers? Again, um, across a number of things, construction would be one, but there's proactive communication usually with the trade bodies and directly with employers where we have interactions with them. Um, and, and some of the areas that we're dealing with, um, is, for example, sharing with cars, car sharing, the like, whilst at work, that's something where we will have some degree of input to. However, some of the difficulties we find are private car sharing to and from work, for example. And in those cases, we're working with PHA um, and their um, community um, health teams to get messages out to individuals, um, and also working directly with employers to ensure that the appropriate advice is available to people. Okay, no, thank you for that. Um, can I just ask a, a question? You've highlighted in your briefing, um, Robert, around um, recruitment issues. Uh, and the, the need to recruit additional staff, particularly in relation to um, EU um, exit issues. Uh, and just also note that there was um, an, an underspend in relation to recruitment from, from the HSE. Have there been some challenges in, in respect of that? The, the underspend, Chair, was in relation to vacancy management. We had anticipated having a number of vacancies filled earlier in the year. And uh, because of the, the ongoing uh, challenges just with getting some of those vacancies filled, we surrendered a, a, an amount of money. Uh, one of the difficulties we have as an organisation is that we can't readily pull staff directly off standard NICS promotion lists. Uh, committee members will appreciate that a lot of our staff are specialist grades. So we have our inspector grades who come in as training inspectors. Uh, usually with a, a science, technology, engineering or maths degree and then they go through a, a regulatory training program diploma which is a postgraduate level training program which takes um, usually somewhere between two and three years because it's uh, classroom based but also they have to build a, an evidential portfolio. Uh, in some of our other areas we have compliance officers and higher scientific officers so again those are not just standard grades. And typically we're looking for people with particular skills 
Um, so at the moment we have a, an HSO vacancy and that HSO would be working very specifically in our lab. Um, one of the key functions would be around asbestos sampling. So we're looking for people with very specific skill sets. So that's where some of our delays in, in recruitment have come. Uh, we're also, uh, I mentioned the, the EU staffing. Uh, and one of the challenges up until very late last year was trying to actually ascertain what the work programme would be for those individuals. So until we knew what the activities were going to be, it made it very difficult to specify the, the grades of people uh, and the type of work they were going to be doing, uh, which is why we're behind on the recruitment in that area. Okay, no, thank you for that. Um, I'm going to bring in some other members for questions. Can I bring in Stuart, please? Small area like Northern Ireland, 
would um, be quite an undertaking. And you couldn't be guaranteed that if you stood all those functions up, that you would have um, the volume of work coming into those functions. So um, it, it probably wouldn't be worth doing. Hence, we have the ongoing dependence on our GB colleagues, maybe the health and safety executive, who are providing the, uh, the chemical regime in GB. Um, now, I have to say that we have had really brilliant support from the health and safety executive and other UK government departments in achieving this. And uh, they are providing a lot of the technical um, support on chemicals, etc. I think uh, the, the other part of the question was a quick broad outline of what our people would be doing in, in relation to EU work. Um, uh, first and foremost, um, it, it's not port-based or it's not point-of-entry based work. Um, the work on chemicals and machinery would be basically working with employers at their premises, at their factories, uh, at their workplaces um, to assist it and to make sure that the chemicals that they would be bringing in or the products that they would be bringing in for use of their work uh, basically comply with the directives. Um, it would be a mixture of desk-based work, um, so it would be some paper checking, and it would also be a mixture of uh, some site-based work, uh, verifying that the, both the chemicals and the product were in compliance. And you know, if you look at chemicals, for example, uh, the purpose of it is to make sure ultimately that the end user has got the sufficient information and equipment and experience um, which comes with the chemicals in order to allow them to use them safely and to remain safe uh, themselves and to protect the environment. Um, so in terms of numbers of staff, it's uh, an increase in our headcount of 11 people. And if that gives you a flavour of the, the regimes that we're covering, uh, the activities and the staffing. Thank you, Stuart. Um, Gordon? Thanks, Chair, and thanks very much, Robert, and your staff for your presentation. Just a couple of quick points. Uh, we do recognise the work you've done with COVID, and certainly uh, in the North Town area, you got involved with a number of factories and um, call centres where we had issues uh, initially. I suppose it's a year ago now, time does fly, but it's, there was a number of issues there. Are you still working with the local councils on issues like that? Uh, in relation to the management of COVID and making sure the place, the workplace is compliant. Uh, and the other points I'll, I'll go through quickly. Uh, what about the, your role in relation to the high street, the supermarkets we hear a lot about? Do you have a role in that, uh, making sure that they are compliant and other councils are involved to some level? And what monitoring and compliance is done in relation to that? Finally, my last point is something I brought up before with yourselves some years ago. was about farm safety. Uh, it's a big issue. It comes up every year. And sadly, as you've said, there were nine fatalities last year. And uh, I do think more should be done in trying to encourage risk assessments on farms. Um, the Chair talked about building sites, and I think a lot has been done to improve safety on building sites. It's certainly much more visible. When you go around the country, you see building sites are now fenced off. There's signage there. There's warnings for people to keep out. And if you're a visitor, you, you, it's very clear where you have to report. So the sites are well managed. But I think more needs to be done to make farms uh, safer places. They need to be safe for the families that are there. 
They need to be safe for contractors and young people that come in to work during the summer especially. Uh, what is done to make sure that they are competent and know what they're doing and that they're, they're safe in what they're doing. Uh, farms are certainly under a lot of pressure. The weather can be against them and when it comes to the, the summer season things just um, move very quickly. But the risk is high and I think more needs to be done. And I appreciate the work that has been done. Uh, you've run different schemes. The SAFE, the safe programme and so on has been run. It's about increasing awareness, but I think more needs to be done to try and make farms safer, safer places for everyone, not just the farmers, but those that I've just mentioned. And there are a lot of visitors to farms as well, uh, sales reps and people uh, delivering goods and so on and so forth. So the risks are high, and I think uh, I would appreciate your feedback on, on the various points, please. Thanks. Um, I appreciate the interest in this because farm safety has been one of the key areas that we've been 
professional. Uh, I've been involved in now for 12 or 13 years. Uh, as Robert just said, three fatalities this year, tragic fatalities. Um, uh, and when you speak to family members and that, you realise what we're really talking about here. Now that, uh, in context, when Farm Safety Partnership was set up uh, back in 2012-2013, we were seeing 11 and 12 farm fatalities a year. So the effort has paid off and the work that's being done has paid off. Uh, a couple of specifics you mentioned, one around risk assessment. Uh, we work closely with colleagues in DERA and now in relation to grant schemes, um, there are requirements for farmers to carry out and submit risk assessments um, before they're able to apply for grants. Uh, and we've seen thousands of risk assessments being uh, supplied uh, as part of that scheme. Um, and anecdotally on the ground, we're finding that people in doing those risk assessments are identifying uh, improvements that they can make and, and acting on that. And that goes along with research that we've done around the SAFE campaign, the TV and radio efforts, uh, and the US campaign, which has started to go out, which is around safety essentials and its targeting the absolute basics. So that work will continue. In relation to young people, it's been a very challenging time with COVID. Normally, we would have had links with uh, over 100 primary schools on, on a rotational basis. So every year, we visit 100 or so primary schools um, and get a farm safety message. We would also run um, a colouring competition for schools and the like, uh, primarily about educating um, primary school children and also working with young farmers. That's been difficult this year, so we moved to uh, an online um, colouring competition, uh, which was very, very well uh, received. Uh, we got a lot of entries from it. From that competition, the winning entries uh, were turned into a calendar with key safety messages, and that calendar has been distributed to 42,000 rural um, families. Um, to continue to keep the message uh, front and centre that farm safety is important, whether you are a two or three year old or whether you are a 90 year old. Um, we continue to work hard on this and we continue to have support from our partners in the Farm Safety Partnership uh, and we appreciate the interest that the committee has in this also. Thanks very much. Thank Thanks. you. That's good detailed answers there. Thanks, Chair. Thanks, Gordon. Um, can we bring John O'Dowd in to the spotlight, please? Yeah, thank you, Chair. Uh, just to echo Gordon's comments about farm safety and again, like, this is a sobering figure. Nine deaths in Orkwick last year. In the middle of COVID, it's going on, it's worth remembering that workplaces can be very dangerous places for other reasons uh, as well. So it's a very, very sobering uh, figure. I want to thank us uh, as an organisation for your work thus far, and in particular, I, I find you very responsive to inquiries and complaints I have made to you on behalf of, of workers in, in different places. You, you, you have always responded, uh, and at times in a quite detailed response to me, so I want to thank you for that. Um, you try to that because sometimes I also have to criticise you on this occasion, I certainly do. Uh, I want to just touch on the, the Southern Trust Health Area has the highest rate of COVID infection in the North and ABC Council uh, from day to day can be at the, the top of that list in terms of COVID infections. I attended the Southern Trust public meeting uh, last week 
And one of the, the issues that was raised was that there is a high rate of infection among the, the black Asian minority African community. And that's not to blame that community for that infection rate. I, I don't want anybody to suggest that's the case. The, the reality is that when you look at many of their working conditions and their living conditions and the communication barriers to them, it presents certain difficulties for sections of Australia. Uh, and in terms of workplaces then, many of the food processing plants that would exist in that area have a high percentage minority ethnic uh, communities in them. And I know I, I raised one plant with you last weekend, last Friday, and Furnish you came back to me quite quickly on it and it offered me also a contact for over the weekend if there's any other areas to concern for it. So it would be a well done. But uh, is there any specific work you're doing in relation to protecting the minority ethnic community in workplaces? John, firstly, thank you for your, your kind remarks. Um, and certainly I can only praise the team for the work that they've done because the, the number of queries that they've handled and not just from elected representatives, but from employees. And obviously when people raise concerns, they want to hear back as quickly as possible because those are very genuine concerns. Uh, people do fear for their health and for the health of their families. Uh, and we try to take all of those uh, and deal with them as quickly as possible. In relation to the, the black and ethnic minority communities, uh, I've actually been involved myself just at the end of last week. I was in discussions with the Department of Finance, uh, with Executive Office colleagues. Uh, they're, they're looking at some issues around targeting very specific issues. And one of the things that was mentioned was communication issues. So where somebody may not have English as their first language, um, how we can get those messages across and then ensure that those people actually have an understanding of what they need to do to keep themselves safe. So we know that a lot of the materials from public health agency and other bodies has been translated into multiple languages. But as you rightly say, the people that we're getting at are potentially those in the lower earning brackets. They may not have access to online media, etc. So it's about how we use some of the different groups within the voluntary community sector to ensure that we get those messages out. Um, and obviously, members will be aware of, of things like pictograms, so the hands, face, space, um, trying to use pictures and, and graphics, as well as text. But that's something which is being actively looked at at the moment as, as to how we can get at, at various ethnic groups within specific communities where we have, as say, any group doesn't necessarily have to be black or Asian. It, it can be groups where certainly English is not their first spoken language. They may speak English, but they may struggle uh, to read a document in English, and particularly if we're talking about medical terms or we're trying to give technical advice. Um, you also mentioned the issue of working conditions. Uh, we've already touched on living conditions and the, the issues of commuting. As, as Brian said, we don't have control over people traveling together in a private vehicle. And again, unfortunately, because of income pressures, there is a lot of carpooling within certain workplaces that we're seeing. Uh, and it's something which I read is actually at that forum. And I don't know whether it's something we can readily tackle. Um, I know, for example, of a couple of companies who previously would have run minibuses because they collected their own staff because of shift working times, etc. And obviously the minibuses had to be taken off the road because of COVID. Um, so it, it's a very challenging issue, one which we are aware of. But in terms of how we address it, I'm not quite so sure. 
We're trying to get the messages out there. We're trying to explain about how people should travel, obviously keeping cars, metal, etc. It's it's not an easy time of the year to drive to work with your windows down. Um, but keeping people ventilated um, and wearing face coverings again at all times if they are travelling together in vehicles. Similarly, people living in houses of multiple occupancy. You know, we've seen situations or heard of situations where people are living in, in fairly cramped conditions. <coughs> you know, probably what we would term as, as overcrowding of a property. Um, so people are sharing the living space, uh, the cooking space, the bathrooms. And all of those things can lead to community transmission as much as workplace transmission. Uh, can I just ask uh, our related point? Uh, you mentioned it in your uh, opening remarks. If an employee is told by their employer to turn up to work even though they're showing symptoms of COVID 19, what is the responsibility like, or who is the authority to which that should be reported to? We are um, referring those people to the Labour Relations Agency um, because, again, until they're actually in the workplace, uh, for our inspectors, it's very difficult to make that decision. We don't have the, the various to decide whether someone should or should not be in the workplace. So if someone feels that they're being put under undue pressure to present to the workplace, it becomes an employment rights or a Labour Relations issue and they should report it to them. If there was a trend identified uh, within, a, within a workplace, um, could you then intervene in the sense that it is a health and safety issue? Sorry, I'll just pass over Brian's indicating they're yeah. talking if, if part, part of any company's controls uh, in terms of COVID must be about ensuring that, that where possible, COVID's not brought into the workplace. So for all of the sites that the inspectors visit, they will look to see that the company has a procedure which identifies that staff should not be attending work if they either have a positive COVID test or they have COVID-like symptoms until they've had the test. They must not attend work if they have been identified as a close contact and that's part of the risk control. So in those circumstances, if we find that there's evidence that those controls are either not in place or not being implemented, then the company will be instructed to, to address that issue and change that issue uh, immediately. And again, if they fail to do that repeatedly, then we would consider enforcement notices. Um, we haven't been in that situation yet. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, John. Um, Sinead, can we bring Sinead into the spotlight, please? Um, thank you very much uh, for your presentation. Uh, and it was very detailed. Um, I was just wondering, um, you, you talked quite a bit about the collaboration um, that you've had with PHA and also with the councils and the advisory role that you've had and obviously your, your service uh, provision has expanded uh, significantly um, because of, of the pandemic. But have you seen a, a greater increase um, in businesses actually being proactive and contacting you as a body to go into their workplace and give them advice and guidance on how um, that they could do their, their business better and protect their employees? Do you want to take that one, Brian? Yeah, 
Um, so the number of advisory calls that we got uh, we get has increased um, over the, the, the period. Um, the majority of those have been relatively simple and straightforward. So staff have been able to provide advice on by, by telephone. We developed uh, template risk assessments uh, to help businesses identify both the risks and, and potential mitigations that they can put in place. Um, and we have run a number uh, along with, with partner organisations such as um, the uh, Northern Ireland Safety Group um, with some local chambers of commerce and the like. We have run um, webinars uh, dealing specifically with COVID issues and COVID control measures that can be put in place. So yes, we have. Um, the amount of advisory work we're doing has increased and that's critical because I think it's only fair to say, you know, there are rogue employers out there, but the vast majority of employers want to do the right thing. They want their staff to be safe. They want the business to be able to operate safely and efficiently uh, and, and not end up uh, having people uh, either ill or the business closed down as a result of an outbreak. So, yes. Uh, thank you, for Brian, for that. Um, and, and also, can I add my congratulations to, to the HSE as well. I've been very impressed with their responses to some of the issues that I have raised uh, within my office, particularly in relation to meat plants. Uh, and they've been very quick, responsive, uh, uh, and uh, I regard what they did with, they did with due care and, and diligence. So thank you to your team. Thank you, Sinead. Um, Robert and everybody else, thank you very much for taking the, the time to be with us this morning. Um, it has been really useful and I'm sure we'll be wanting to um, be in touch with you again quite soon in relation to COVID and also Brexit issues as, as that continues to unfold. So thanks again for your time. Thank you, Chair. Thank you all. Thank you. Okay, members. Okay, is there anything we need to follow I'll go back and just um, see if we can get um, a rolling check on the recruitment of the staff and, and them getting into post and whether there's any further need. I can recall, Chair, a while back, um, there was a bid in for staff, but it does look like the, the staffing that was asked for has been uh, allocated. It's just as, as was being clarified there, they, they're all um, specialist posts, so the training and the recruitment's just a bit more difficult. Okay. We'll follow up on that. Okay, thank you, Peter. Okay, so we're moving on then to item number six, which is matters arising. At page 77 of your pack, there is a response from the Minister regarding applying for COVID restriction business support schemes. Um, so I can just ask members to, to mute their devices when they're, when they're not speaking again. Thank you. Um, so the response has indicated that Invest NIA officials have not received any feedback to indicate that applicants are unclear as to the purpose of the accountant's letter or that they're unclear that the letters are optional. And they might disagree with that. Um, in addition, officials are also unaware of any feedback or evidence to suggest that the optional accountant's letters are acting as a barrier to applications. Um, I know that I have made Invest aware that um, it wasn't entirely clear that the letters were optional, so I'm sure all the members have as well. Um, unless any members have other comments to make, that's to note. Great. Thank you. 
Um, page 78 then, there's a departmental response regarding a query from the Finance Committee on the COVID-19 business support schemes operated by DFE. So the response includes an outline of all the schemes um, followed by a table giving an overview of the schemes. So again, it's to note, and, and we've already had some discussion in relation to that. Great. Page 85, then there's a departmental response regarding COVID support schemes. Um, at our meeting on the 13th of January, members received an oral briefing on January monitoring and agreed to ask the department for a number of requests in relation to the COVID support schemes. So again, it's to note unless there's any comments. Okay. Great, yeah. Um, page 90, then there's a hansard of a briefing to the infrastructure committee from um, the retail consortium Logistics UK and the Road Haulage Association concerning issues facing um, the freight and haulage sector due to the end of the transition period and the outworkings of the TCA and where it interacts with the protocol. So it has been provided for members' information um, and is to note at this stage, and I'm sure we'll be bringing it back for further um, consideration. Yeah, I think, Chair, it would be good if we had a bit of a, a discussion on it, maybe, and one or two representatives to come and talk to us about it. Chair, I know um, representatives have been in front of both the ERA and the infrastructure committees, and their, yeah. their groups we're in regular contact with, so we'll, we'll sort that out. Okay, thank you. And thank you. So moving on then to page 114, there's correspondence from the ERA committee um, regarding CAFRI students. So we had written to DARA seeking an update on the impact of COVID-19 on student mental health, welfare and well-being at the college. The response covers issues such as accommodation, remote learning, enrolment and the student hardship fund and are similar to the issues that have been raised by um, other student representatives to the committee. Um, so it's for noting and P Peter, perhaps if we could ask the department for um, a, a, either a written or oral briefing in relation to the student support um, funding that was announced yesterday evening and the Minister had previously indicated she was looking at further support so it would be useful to get some um, overview of that and I, I know I, I did a meeting with some students locally last night myself and mental health is an issue that continues to be raised um, and I know members have raised it previously but I think it would be good to get some update in respect of that. Chair, it might be useful. I've had some discussions with the universities and what they flagged up is uh, a need for budgeting in the next financial year, what they're concerned about is not just the mental health of students that are currently within the universities and colleges and so on, but they're, they're worried about students coming into university come September who won't have sat A-levels, will, will have very much been out of the loop in terms of having been at school, and they're, they're really quite concerned that they're going to need an awful lot of additional staff to support those students. Um, just, you know, with, with very simple things of, of formal exam settings, you know, how um, that change between GCSE that comes at A-level, you know, for, for preparation for university, that a lot of young people would have missed out on that. So it's maybe just something that the, the committee needs to keep on the radar at the minute, is there, there will be a need for that kind of support um, coming into the new financial year, kind of going towards September. Okay. Sure. Yeah, go ahead, John. Yeah, I agree with Peter's remarks uh, looking towards the future, uh, which is coming out quite quickly. But I also think, uh, I note your comments, we need to, our students need to understand how to apply for this additional student hardship fund. And I welcome the fact that the Minister has said previously that it has to be more accessible than it was previously. But we need to know the criteria, students need to know the criteria on how to apply for it. 
And then there's an onus on the universities and the further education colleges to uh, reassure students and their families that the loops you had to jump through before uh, will be removed and that students will be able to get access to the much needed finance. Yep. We follow okay. through on that, Jerry. Thanks, John. Okay, so moving on then to um, page 117, there's a response there from um, Stramillis University College Students' Union, and similarly, it's an update on the impact of COVID on student mental health, well welfare and wellbeing, um, and similarly covers um, issues already highlighted by student representatives. Um, we have already corresponded with the Minister and Executive on this, so we can forward that response on as well. Um, and again, it's to note, and I think um, the committee would want to put on record its um, appreciation to the student representatives for how amenable they have been in terms of getting us information and also to the, the UCU who have communicated with us on a number of occasions in the university. So it has really helped us um, in terms of our responses. So are members content to note? Great, yeah. Okay, so page 119 then, there is a response from the Association of British Insurers about COVID claims. Um, members will be aware of the FCA's um, court action in respect of business interruption in uh, insurance. Um, and this response from ABI indicates that insurers have already started to settle some of the valid claims and insurers will be working through cases affected by the Supreme Court judgment as a priority. Um, the ABI has also set out clear principles online <coughs> which provide details on how businesses with valid claims can expect their insurers to respond. So um, Peter has, on behalf of the committee, been engaging with stakeholders to seek their feedback on their experiences in respect of this. So it's to note for now, and we will bring back those responses in, in due course. Okay. Good. Right. Thank you. Um, then at page seven of your table um, papers, there's a departmental response regarding issues raised by um, university and college union. The department's response highlights that the North universities are autonomous institutions and are responsible for ensuring compliance with all public health guidance in relation to the current COVID-19 pandemic, including the determination of employee working arrangements. Um, the Queen's believes that in order to meet basic student needs, limited staff are required on site, but they have introduced mitigations such as rotas. Queen's um, do not have any staff on site who do not want to be due to the current circumstances. Uh, in relation to the arrival of international students from China, Queen's has raised the matter with the Executive Office Task Force and were advised that the new regulations could not prevent the flight as long as the public health guidance was adhered to. Before boarding the flight, students had to provide evidence of a negative COVID-19 test and not be displaying any um, symptoms. So are members content to forward this response on to UCU? Great, yeah. Sure, we'll bring back whatever their comment is. Okay, thank you. I think you, that's Peter. reassuring about the flight. I certainly don't believe it was public knowledge that, you know, and not that I'm aware of that I've seen it in the media, but at least there were controls there uh, sure. in place, and we, I think we, that's, that's to be welcomed. We got some clarifications, I think, in, in last week's pack. It was in the record of decisions, so we, we didn't get to discuss it in committee, and I'd spoken to Queen's, and we went through a list of, of what they'd done. Um, that's fairly well reflected in that um, response last week, and it might just be worth us putting that in the pack again yeah. next week for, for matters rising, because it, it does set out specifics. That, that's a, a more general response, but it does set out specifics of all the process that they went through and who they spoke to, who they Good. contacted, including the airports and so on. It just 
Um, I think it's helpful for members to be able to see and understand just exactly what what was done. Yeah. Okay. So moving on then to 6.9 at page 12 of the table papers, there is correspondence from John Darcy, who is director of Open University. Um, who and um, John took place in the skills micro inquiry last Thursday and has provided this further briefing paper um, following the, the, the inquiry. So the paper outlines skills needed, access and quality, funding, lifelong learning and the key strengths of the Open University. So this paper will also be included in the committee's final report. Um, Peter, is there anything you want to add to in relation to the, the when we're expecting? Yeah, Chair, we're, we're working on the um, drawing together the themes for the special report at the minute. We've had a few uh, organisations have sent us that kind of follow-up as well, which has been really useful. Um, obviously, we had a, a note-taker in each of the breakout rooms, so we're hoping we'll capture everything. We, we will hopefully bring that back in the next couple of weeks. As I say, we'll uh, start with themes, and then we'll have a full report uh, for members to discuss, hopefully agree on, and then we can bring the debate to the plenary. Thank you, Peter. So moving on then, um, item number seven, there's a departmental written briefing and the review of level four and level five provision and HE and FE, a review of existing policy. So um, there is a written briefing at page 122 of your PACS. The department has undertaken a review covering the following work streams. Um, define the level of, sorry, define level four and five and HE and FE proposition, level four and five qualifications, Foundation degree policy, alignment with the department's other provision, pathways and progression routes, funding and MASIN, the role of universities in level four and five provision, and the role of um, FE colleges in level six provision, and finally, retention and achievement levels at level four and five and in HE and FE. So the report will be published next um, year. So, uh, members, uh, we will try and seek a briefing on that, and I think John's looking to come in on it there. Yeah, Chair, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, John. Uh, thank you, Chair. Uh, I think this could be a very interesting piece of work uh, if, if handled properly and new ideas are brought to fruition as a result of it. Uh, COVID 19 is going to change many aspects of our society and really accelerate uh, some of those which were already taking place. And I think it is after we're going, the department is going to take an in-depth look at uh, university and college education um, and, and, and the purpose of it and the outcomes for students. And so uh, I actually look forward to this piece of work and if we can get a presentation from the department in the near future, I think it would be very useful. Okay, thanks John. Okay. Okay, then moving on to item number eight, which is correspondence at page 126 of your pack. There's correspondence from the Committee of the Executive Office regarding the terms of reference for the committee overseeing EU exit matters. This replaces the Executive Subcommittee on Brexit, so as to note unless members have any comments. Read. Okay. Page 135, there's correspondence from the Committee for Infrastructure regarding the impact of Brexit on the haulage and retail sectors. The Committee for Infrastructure had a briefing from um, the Retail Consortium, Logistics UK and the Road Haulage Association and we already had the answered in matters arising. So the issues that they've highlighted include grouping and export health certificates, customs agents, empty loads, the Trader Support Service, delays at border posts and the impact of COVID-19. The committee have also included possible mitigations which could be utilised. So it's, 
as to note unless members have any specific comments, but Peter, we had agreed member to look at the briefing with TSS. Yes, any? so we're we're still working on that, Chair. The um, uh, ERA committee have approached, and we're looking at how we do that jointly, um, so it, it can be done as one session rather than, than kind of having to bring them in more than once. Okay. So we, we continue to work on that, and, and when the response to this comes through, it'll come via this committee as well. Um, okay, so moving on then to 8.3, um, page 139, there's correspondence from Lord Kinnell, um, who's chair of the Lords EU Affairs Committee, to Rebecca Pau regarding EM1394420, a proposal for regulation on batteries and waste batteries. Um, Lord Kinnell states that his committee's primary focus is on the implications of the regulation further here in the North, given its direct application under the protocol. He asked a number of questions in relation to this, and just to inform members, I've been invited to meet with the Lords EU Committee on the 22nd of February, along with the Chairs of ERA Finance and Executive Office Committees. Um, so if members are content that I will attend that, and we will note Lord Canoe's letter for now. Great, yeah. Thank you. Um, so moving on then to 8.4, uh, page 142 of your pack, there's correspondence from an individual regarding support for small tourism and accommodation. And it's in relation to the issue that Gordon raised earlier on around self-catering premises being excluded from the recently announced B&B guest house and guest accommodation grant. So members of contempt will forward that on to the department and, and Gordon has already raised this issue too. Right, thank you, great. Um, page 143 then of the pack, there's correspondence from ARC 21 to Executive Ministers regarding green gro growth. Um, ARC 21, as members will know, are a waste and resource management body who believe that waste can make a significant contribution to the successful delivery of green growth. They highlight issues such as net zero, clean energies, the circular economy and sustainable sustainability and protecting the environment. So it's to note, unless members have any comments, I thought it was quite an interesting letter and uh, it might be worth exploring some more detail at some stage. Those are some of the issues we're picking up um, with the department around the energy strategy. Um, if This is probably a good point to, to ask members if they're content that we bring back those themes for discussion. I'm just I'm conscious of the fact that the energy strategy is... Um, probably you know forthcoming in the next couple of months. I think it might just be useful to bring the issues back to committee for a bit of a further discussion so that uh, members can be refreshed on those themes before we see something from the department. Yep. Yep. Great. Thank you. Okay, then um, moving on, page 146, there is the 21st report of the examiner statute of rules. So to note, unless members have any comments. Great. Um, page um, 17 of table papers then is the assembly statement from Minister Weir regarding alternative awarding arrangements for CEA qualifications in summer 2021. Um, there will be a five-stage process for awarding GCSEs, AS and A-levels this year. And um, members will likely have heard this, this statement earlier this week, but the five stages will be training, support and guidance provided by CEA, provision of assessment resources and evidence gathering process, determining grades and internal moderation of those grades, external review of evidence, and then the distribution of grades and post-award review. So that is for members to note, unless there's any comments. Peter, it might be worth communicating with universities at some stage in relation to how they view this process um, and how they will be responding 
um, in terms of, a, of making offers and that process. What process, yep. Chair, we follow up on that. Um, at page 45 then of table papers, there's correspondence from CBI containing its COVID um, emergency working group notes from its meeting held on the 27th of January. So that's to note unless any members have any comments. Great. Page 50 then of table papers, there is correspondence from Rani regarding an addendum to the 2020 consultation response. Rani submitted a comprehensive response to the department's consultation on the non-domestic RHI scheme. Rani highlights that further research has revealed that the cost base for the comparison used in the 2020 non-domestic tariff review calculation has due data relating to domestic fuel volumes and costs, including VAT. So it's to note unless members have any comments. And it might be a useful um, point to seek an update in relation to the RHI scheme. Thank you. Okay, moving on then, page 76 of table paper is, is the ISNI Assembly Committee report. So again, that's to note unless members have any comments. Great. Okay. Um, any other business Claire has just indicated? So Claire, do you want to come in? Hi, uh, yes, thank you, Chair. Um, Chair, earlier this week, uh, members will note that um, Ulster University made the decision to move health sciences to McGee. Um, I just want to say that I have no difficulty with the growth of McGee, and indeed it will be good for the North West and for Derry. But I think naturally, as, as a MLA for East London Derry, where we have uh, the, the Korean campus of Ulster University, I am concerned that the previous Vice Chancellor had promised places at Korean in respect of, um, in respect of uh, health sciences. Um, I'm just concerned that we are diminishing Korean in itself, and I think it might be worth it if, if the committee was in, a, in agreement to, um, to, to seek um, uh, 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 support, uh, the Ulster's continued commitment for Korean um, and how he intends, what, what are you know, the, the Vice Chancellor's plans in respect of Korean and indeed the wider um, Ulster University uh, campuses across Northern Ireland. Um, you know, for me, this isn't the old Korean McGee argument. I, you know, I, 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 I reject that entirely, but it is a concern that Korean, its infrastructure, its tourism, and all of that has been built up around the fact that we have um, a university in Korean. And I think it's, a, it's important that we ensure moving forward in order to protect wider aspects of, of the, the North Coast that, um, that we seek assurances uh, from the university that they are committed to Korean and even and every other campus across Northern Ireland. Um, sorry, go ahead, Stuart. John O'Dowd is looking in there as well. Uh, thank you, Chair. I'm happy to engage uh, with uh, Austrian University on that basis after looking at how we develop uh, across the uh, for an equitable fashion, which wasn't always the case 
uh, in the past because universities are not only places of learning, but as Claire has pointed out, they're also economic drivers as well. Uh, so if we can, um, as I say, having to engage with university on the basis that we're looking at how we expand the foreign equitable distribution of university places uh, across the world. Yep, no, um, I'm content with that approach and Peter's going to, to organise that communication and, and obviously um, from a constituency perspective as well, it's something I have engaged with the university around and, and know that there has been commitment given to the, the multi-campus approach, but I, I do um, um, share your, your points there, John, as well, in respect of that. So, Peter, Let's if you can chair. get that organised. So, did you want to raise some other issue as well? Yeah, sure, if you don't mind. Um, I would say every MLA is getting uh, correspondence in relation to the issues around the, the Northern Ireland Protocol and, and the East West Arrangements. I suppose given that a lot of that's coming from local businesses and their concerns of getting supplies from GB, is there um, a, an opportunity to speak with either the Department or even out to the First Minister and Deputy First Minister to see if they are advocating to try and, uh, I suppose, uh, get rid of these issues and see if there's a way forward in, in, in you know, helping businesses here in Northern Ireland you know, get the supplies that they, they have been used to. Um, I suppose the difficulty is, is that ultimately it's, it's a UK golf issue. However, I do think there is, um, there is strength, certainly if it was coming from the Northern Ireland executive, whether it's the, the first deputy first minister or the economy minister, that um, they advocate around trying to mitigate against the, the concerns that are being raised with me and I'm sure other MLAs. Okay, and I think Sinead's looking in there as well. But go ahead, Sinead. Sorry, um, I, I mean, I'm happy to come in on both, both issues raised by Claire, but it, it would be remiss of me since I uh, raised the uh, very regularly at the committee. Uh, not to say that we welcome the news um, this week of the, the placement of the Allied Health Sciences to, to McGee, uh, and it will really support. Um, our ambition within the city dean uh, and it connects very very well with the medical school uh, and uh, I appreciate Claire um, raising that it's not uh, an either or and certainly I would embrace um, a discussion around higher education and on how we deliver higher education here in Northern Ireland. We have real issues with the mass and cap uh, and, and there is a commitment in the new decade new dean to have 10,000 students um, at the McGee campus, and that requires a discussion about how we deliver higher education throughout Northern Ireland. So I definitely uh, welcome that discussion. Uh, and I can feel uh, Claire's pain. Um, we have been working on this very loudly, campaigning for 53 years. Uh, and we made a small step, but we're still one of the smallest campuses in the whole of uh, Ireland and Ireland. Uh, whilst we've made a small step this week, we have larger steps to make uh, in the greater scheme of things uh, in the next few years, and we will uh, keep up the momentum. Uh, but certainly happy to discuss higher education because the executive is committed to 10,000 uh, students in, in the game, so I need to see a plan how they're going to do that. Uh, very, very, very soon. Yeah. So go ahead, Stuart. Stuart, I'm Yes, he's on. Stuart, you're muted. Oh, he's off now. Yeah. We can hear you. We can hear you. Okay, thank you, Chair. 
regards to where we are in relation to east-west trade. A lot of the items are on the original list or now starting to be ticked off the list, which is good. Perhaps it would be helpful if we, for example, we saw this group each just now being resolved. And it might be useful if we got a checklist just to see what remains to be done to improve that. I think there are some encouraging signs that that improvement is starting. One area which I think we do, I agree with the Minister, is to examine if we can develop a whole package for Northern Ireland where it is ideally placed both in the east-west and north-south and for EU and GDP trading opportunities and that we should be seeing what plans the executive and the Minister have for that. Thanks, Stuart. John O'Dowd is looking in there as well. Just on the east-west trade issues, happy to agree to that. What I have to say, my inbox is not full of concerns from businesses, families or workers' relations with the Commonwealth. My inbox is full of concerns from businesses, families and workers about not getting grants from various government departments, about insecurity around their jobs and a whole range of other things. So yes, if there are real issues, then that's deep. And also in terms of the protocol, they have to look at, and I raised this, we can't forget the data, but yesterday's meeting with officials around the opportunities the protocol presents for businesses here, for potential businesses here to create jobs and employment, and also in terms of inter-trade Ireland, to support inter-trade Ireland and other bodies around giving businesses the support they require when necessary or if needed to find sources of materials and goods elsewhere. Thanks, John. And just to highlight to members, we are getting a briefing from Invest NI and Intertrade hopefully the week after next. So those are some of the issues that we can pick up with them in respect of that. And I also think that in relation to the points that Stuart has made about the issues that have been resolved to date, so happy to communicate what Claire has outlined in relation to where there may be some ongoing teething issues and what has been resolved. Yeah, Chair, we can we can ask that. Okay, so then that is us, unless the members have anything else. So um, agenda item number 10 is the date, time and place of the next meeting, which is next Wednesday here in room 30 at 10 a.m. So, thank you. Thank you, members. Thank you, Chair. Thank you. 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 Thank